I want to share with you this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'll be reading the first 11 verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We live in times that are often very confusing as far as the particularly political and social ideologies that we're facing all the time. And oftentimes we wonder as Christians where we should be taking a stand. And I think there's two main questions that if we answer these two main questions, it'll help us understand as Christians what it means to live consistent living in this day and age. It goes along with what Wright's calling us to here. So first question is, who are we? What is our identity? And by asking that, I'm asking who are, what is our identity in Christ? So what does it mean for us? It means that we need to live up to who we are, to live out um, the relationships that we have. Who are we as Christians in this day and age? And the second is, what is our mission? What are we to do? And if we look at what the social values that are being fostered upon us, we look at those and the implications of that, and we see the evidence in us all around us. If we say, who are we in a context like this, we will become distinctive people. And if we ask, okay, what is our mission? Our mission is to glorify the Lord in all that we do, in all of our relationships, in all of our businesses, and our uh, just living out daily life. That's going to have an implication in every single area of our life. Because when Christ comes to save us, he saves us completely and totally. So with that as a background, I'll read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified or holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he, rejects, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do this, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So as we look at the questions, who are we? We are children of God. What is our mission? 
Paul is writing here to the church, Christian people at Thessalonica, church that he founded. And he's writing this because he's, he's talking about how are we going to live in a way that pleases God. And that's our motivation, isn't it? That's really our mission if we want to look at it that way. And that's a, a mission that all of us are called to and all of us are expected to fulfill, to live our lives pleasing to God. So living our lives pleasing to God, what does that look like? Well, he talks about that a little bit here. And he acknowledges that many of us, many of you, are already living that kind of a lifestyle. And he's encouraging them to do so more and more. And the instructions that he's talking about, uh, the word there is more like a, a military command. It's, it's, um, it's not a suggestion. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's not a good idea. It's a command uh, to walk with the Lord. And so he, he makes it very plain for people like us. He says, oftentimes as we pray, we ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? I hope we pray that way. And he's going to tell us in verse 3, it is God's will. So, no ambiguity there. It says, this is the will of God that you should be sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means set apart for God. It means living a holy life, reflecting the holiness of God. And the commands that throughout the New Testament... Uh, building on the Old Testament, God tells his people, be holy because God is holy. Be holy for I am holy is the way God expresses that. He didn't say go around doing holy things. What he says is be holy. And again, if a person is holy, then everything they do is holy. And if they're not holy, then nothing they do is holy no matter how good it appears on the outward side. So he said, God's will is that we be holy. What does that mean? It means living in a way to please God. It means uh, as we conduct our businesses, as we uh, interact with one another, the bottom line in our life is this, your will be done. Not what I want, but what you want. And then get up and live it out. Jesus modeled that for us, both in the Lord's Prayer that he taught us to pray and in the prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, this is what my intense desire, my greatest desire of my heart is, let this cup be removed from me. A holy man asking a holy God to take away the suffering and the burdens of what he's about to face. And then he, at the end of that, though, not my will, but yours be done. And he prayed it three times. He helped us. He kept waking the disciples up because he said it's important that you see this and understand this. Uh, this is what it means to be a holy man, to be a holy woman, to be a holy person walking with the Lord. This is, God, this is what I desire with all my heart, yet I can lay it aside in obedience to you. Now, oftentimes, we don't have to lay it aside because it's in the will of God. He gives us what we're asking. But there are times, and there are times when it's a costly decision, like it was for Jesus, where we'll be called upon to lay aside what we earnestly desire. 
And there may not be nothing wrong with the request. There wasn't anything wrong with the request that Jesus made. It just wasn't God's will for him at that time. So the key is obedience. And within that obedience, there's an incredible amount of freedom. It's not restrictive at all. Because when you're walking in the will of God, it opens up the whole plan of God for a person's life. Um, you're freer. What sin does, and we don't realize this, it's part of the lies that we have bought into. We think that we can have more fun and be, um, get more self-gratification out of the sin that's so uh, prevalent around us, and we don't realize that every time we sin, we restrict. We're making our, our lives smaller and smaller and smaller until we end up with the smallest gift a person can have. You know what the smallest gift there is in the whole world? It's a man wrapped up in himself. And what we do when we give in to those sins and cravings that, that all of us have is we become smaller and smaller, diminished, less human, and we end up with the smallest gift there is, wrapped up in ourselves, and there's no room for anybody or anything except me. And it's a very small, restrictive thing. person in a straitjacket in a cell is freer than you. When we begin to walk with the Lord... Those things come off. And we have the tremendous liberty of the plan of God for our life. And as you read through the, uh, particularly books like the Psalms, when he starts talking about salvation, he took me out of a pit, confined and narrow, can't get out. And he set me on a rock. And here's this vast vista open before him. He set me free. Options are increased. And all of God's blessings are there. So he says, this is God's will, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now it's interesting, if you go through almost every letter that Paul writes, he addresses this issue. And yet it's one of the issues that we fail to address in the church adequately. That's not right. He's writing to Christian people, and he's saying inside the church, Christian people struggle with these issues as much as people outside the church do. And oftentimes, with about the same success rate. In other words, they're not successful at all. <laughs> and so he's writing to the Thessalonican Christians, and he's telling them, understand, this is a problem that we all face. And the people of the church at Thessalonica, as at Corinth, as at all the other churches that Paul wrote to, um, it's an ongoing struggle to walk in obedience to the, to the Lord without becoming contaminated by the sins of the world around us. It's like a person with a, going to a wedding with their vest clothes on and it's been raining and the streets are all muddy and you're trying to get through there without getting all that stuff on you. It's very hard to go through that without being polluted, just not because you're jumping in puddles, but simply because it's just there and you almost cannot avoid it. And so he's writing about this continuous cleansing, this continuing discipline in the, in the church. So he says sexual immorality, and this is the, one of the broadest terms. It covers just about everything that's wrong um, sexually. And he says that each of you should learn to control his own body. Now some of you, if you have an NIV with a footnote at the bottom, you might look at it because there's alternative reading here. 
The word for body would be the old English word vessel. Each person should learn to um, control his own vessel, his own body. Now the thing is that this same word can mean about three different things. It can mean the physical body, and you see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul is talking about um, the the treasure of the light of the knowledge of God in Christ. He says, we have this in earthen vessels, clay pots. He's talking about the body. We have the body of Christ. Uh, We are the body of Christ, Christ living within us. And he's talking about our physical bodies. But it can also be the same word is used in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's giving instructions to men and women, and he's writing to the wives here, or to the men, about their wives. And he's telling the men that they need to be respectful and gentle with their wives as the weaker vessel. It's the exact same word that Paul uses here. So he says, each of you should learn to possess his own wife in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Now, did you hear what he just said? Within the confines of the marriage relationship, you can still have a sinful sexual relationship. If it's motivated out of lust, out of seeking to use the other person or manipulate or control the other person. Now, it's within a marriage situation. He's not committing adultery or fornication or anything else. But just because a person gets married, as those who are married know, doesn't mean that they don't struggle with lust, does it? Look at David. David had about six or seven wives, and he went out and stole another man's wife. Well, he didn't need to do that. He's got six of his own, plus concubines, and he's going out stealing somebody else's wife because of the lust of the flesh that was within him. So what he's saying is that within the marriage confines, we should also be able to respect and build up the other person, not use or manipulate them simply for ourselves, for our own benefit. And so it's something that uh, we need to talk about in the church because um, we don't deal with those issues, and yet it creates problems within the home, doesn't it? Many problems there because that's where people begin to lose their respect for each other as persons. A third way that you could interpret this, again using the same word, is that each of you should learn to acquire or gain a wife in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. How do we approach the marriage to begin with? How do we acquire a husband or a wife? What is the motivation behind that? He's saying we should even conduct that kind of relationship in an honorable and holy way because that's the beginning, the foundation of what's later going to be the marriage. And yet how often do we look at physical characteristics, physical attraction, and that's about as far as we go. Um, And that's what's pushed on us all around us, isn't it? And so when he's talking about living holy lives... It means in every area of our life, and we're dealing with this right now. Um, Paul's extremely contemporary, isn't he? Because uh, that's one area that people are always wanting to push the boundaries of. And, 
as you watch, uh, read through history and you see civilizations beginning to, to decay, these are some of the first social indicators that this civilization is nearing its end. It's when the sexual mores break down, when people begin to manipulate and use other people, and when things that were once whispered about become open and thrown in your face in your society, that's when your society is, is in trouble because it, it indicates a complete and total moral meltdown in the society that's taking place. And what it means is that every individual person, you're out for yourself, even within the close family unit. And Paul is writing to address that in the early church. I think in the context here, he's mainly talking about um, guarding each individual your own body. But those other two alternate readings are valid from the, from the language, and they're also biblical stands that we need to take. And we need to take to heart those things and look to our own relationships in our home, homes. Why is it that the divorce rate among professing Christians is exactly the same as non-Christians nowadays. It begins partly right here. How we view one another and how we treat one another in the most intimate times when we're together as a couple. That's where it starts. The breakdown in the home and in the family. Uh, beginning to take for granted, begin to say, well, that person's there for me, and that's all. And I'll take what I want, and I don't want any responsibility here. And Paul's addressing that, and he says, in the church, as Christian people, it's pleasing to God, it's living holy lives, treating one another in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. And why do they live that way? Because they do not know God. So if we know God, Paul says, it should affect every single area of our life. Our thinking, our actions, our attitudes, every single area of our life, if we know God. If not, then we're living like the heathens as if God did not exist. So he says, we should be able to control our own body, self-control, which is something we hear very little about in the world today. Go ahead. You deserve it. You owe it to yourself. You've got to look out for number one here. Uh, You've got to watch your back and take care of yourself. And the whole deal is that, that I get what I want when I want it and as long as I want it, and then I want you to leave me alone. And I don't want you to tell me about responsibilities or obligations or commitments of any kind because I want what I want, and I don't care about you. Now, that's everything our society and culture is pushing on us right now through the media, even through advertising, through billboards, through literature, through anything that you want to think about. Look at the role models that it sets before us. Uh, Look at the content of the films and things that are around us. Um, It's all pushing that kind of a lifestyle. And Paul says, as Christians, we don't live that way. And he tells us why. So we don't do that um, like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, 
but to live a holy life. Now, the impurities that he's talking about, um, it includes the sexual area of our relationships, but it goes way beyond that. If a person is greedy and has a lust for wealth, that's an impure thing. Or if they have a lust or a desire, great desire for popularity or fame or um, to be seen, you know, all of these different things um, are still impure and there's still lust, strong desires that motivate us to live or to do certain things. So he says, God did not call us to, the, to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his holy spirit. So if Christ is in our heart, and he is holy, and if God has given us his holy spirit within us, what kind of people ought we to be? God's will is that you be sanctified, set aside, be pleasing to him in every area of our lives. And so he talks, he encourages them to, to the social aspects as well, um, to love one another as, as they've been taught. And he says, in fact, you do this, and he's again encouraging them to do this more and more. And so that's twice within this short passage that he's encouraged them to do things in an increasing way. Live pleasing God and do this in increasing ways more and more. Live in ways that we honor and respect and love one another and do this in increasing ways more and more. What's your ambition as an individual? No matter where you are in your life, we all have ambitions, or we should have. If we don't have ambitions, then we just sit and do nothing. So, Ambition is something that we desire with eagerness, something that we seek to attain, something that is high or great. It's an ambition. Um, so we would talk to young children, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, that's their ambition. You know, they might want to be a fireman, or if you get the little ones, they maybe want to be Superman or, <laughs> or a cowboy, you know. Um, and that's their ambition. That's their goal. But as we go through life, in every area, every stage of our life, um, sometimes our ambitions change. Sometimes it's a real, you're locked into it, that's what I want to do, that's what I want to be, and that's what they strive to become. The rest of their life is built around accomplishing that goal, and that's great. Others, their ambition will change as they mature and as they go through life and things change. But every one of us needs to have an ambition, and we need to know what it is. Because if we don't know where it is, how will we know when we've achieved it? So when we travel, there's usually a destination somewhere. And we know we've arrived when we've got there. But if you're just traveling and you don't have any ambition, any goal, you're just kind of out there. Uh, and so you never know when you get to where you want to be because you don't know where you want to be. So what's our ambition? What's our goal? Paul writes... And he says, as Christian people, make it your ambition, your goal, something we need to desire strongly, to live a quiet life. That's not what the world says, is it? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Doesn't mean dull, doesn't mean boring. It means satisfied with who you are, 
where you are with what you have and to live a quiet life. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. This is the Old Testament answer to that kind of issues. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, these were legitimate questions because these were answers that their culture was giving to those questions. He has showed you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And if we're going to walk with God, we're going to have to do it humbly because we serve a humble God. He walks with the meek and the lowly. The book of Numbers tells us that of all men, Moses was the most meek. Now, when I think of Moses and I think of meekness, those two don't seem to go together in my mind. <laughs> Here's the guy with the fire in his eye and he comes down, let my people go, and he calls down these ten plagues and he's up on the mountain with God and he comes down, the people are in idolatry and he takes the tablets and he breaks them and, and a bunch of people get killed in that process and he's leading the people out and, you know, it's fire and brimstone kind of deal. And it says Moses was the most meek individual at that time. He was meek because he wasn't doing it in his own strength, in his own wisdom, and accomplishing his own will. He was the man who lived in the presence of God. So make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Proverbs says that a, a man who meddles in, in a, a squabble not his own is like a man who grabs a dog by the ears. <laughs> and then, you know, you wonder what the consequences are. And oftentimes, um, have you ever had people get up and carry burdens that they have no right carrying or interfere in a situation which they haven't even been asked to help with? Or they see a, an, what they perceive as an injustice and they're going to step in and say, okay, I'm going to take care of this. Uh, mind your own business, Paul says to the church. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Walk with the Lord in consistency day by day. And he says, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life, here's the reason for all of this living this way, glorifying God, pleasing Him, but, verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, you remember in the book of Acts that um, all these thousands of people had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And 
on that feast day with all of these thousands of people from all around the world there, that was the day that God chose to pour out His Holy Spirit on all flesh for the first time in fulfillment of the prophecies and as a culmination of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so the Holy Spirit comes and a couple of thousand people were added to the church that day. And um, after the feast, normally everybody went home, but many of those who had new converts didn't. And there were Gentiles and there were uh, Gentile God-fearers and, and uh, had become Jewish converts, some of them. Some of them didn't leave. And it's said that in the early church, no one had any need because some of the wealthier people, like Barnabas, uh, who owned property, some of them, willingly of their own volition, because God had put it in their heart, sold some property, took the money, put it at the feet of the apostles to say, you give this to whoever needs it. Well, after a while, part of the problem was that uh, in some of these early churches, you had people that thought that was a great idea. You know, it's like a church welfare system. <laughs> and so you can, you can come over here and you can sit down and say, well, that guy's got more money than me. He's got more than he needs. And man, it's hard working out here. So I'm just going to uh, sit here and maybe he can give me some of his. And I can just sit. And that's what was taking place in the early church. And Paul says, wait a minute. He wrote to one of the other churches, if you don't work, you don't eat. And he's writing here to the church of Thessalonica. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work so that you don't be dependent upon anybody, but you'll have something to give. And that's the goal. I, was, I had a friend that I, I knew really well, uh, And um, he was a glazer. They asked, they asked his, his little kid, went to, went to school one day, and they, they were, everybody was telling them what their dads did. And they said, what does your dad do? And he said, he's a glacier. <laughs> he's, a, he's a what? He's a glacier. <laughs> he was a glazer. And uh, he was one of these guys who worked for the union and everything, and they did these big high-wise buildings. It was 50 stories and all that. He's on the outside putting the windows in. So he had a really good job. Well, things got difficult, and uh, he was laid off. And so uh, he had actually been one of the labor bosses in the area where he was, and so he had a pretty high-level salary. So the labor union was taking care of him. He was getting a check every month, but he had to go out and try to find jobs. So what he did, and this is what disappointed me about him, was he would go around and he would interview for these jobs, and they would say, okay, you can have this job, and he'd say, no, I don't want that job. And I said, well, what, what is going on here? And he said, I can go out here and I can work and they'll pay me this level of salary. I can sit here and do nothing and the union will take care of me at this salary. Why should I go work? So he was working the system. That's part of what was happening in the church. Well, there's things that you can do, but I can sit here and somebody will give me something. So why should I go out and work? Paul says, make it your ambition Lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands. This is where your witness, your testimony comes. Because I know many of you um, as Christian people, you've had people walk into your home, stay with you a little while, and as they're leaving, they're saying, it's just such a peaceful place. Enjoy the time here. It's the presence of the Lord. 
the peace of God in you. It's in your home. And people coming in from outside, they know it. They may not know what it is. They may not understand it. But they sense the presence of the Lord in you and in your home. And they respond to it. And they ask. And then you can tell them. It's easy to witness that way. Now, the, only, the other thing that he says, uh, we're not going to get into it uh, a lot today, but um, verses 13 and 14, the other thing he, he tells them what they need to do is to moderate their grief, considering the hope and the promise we have in Christ. Some of the Thessalonian Christians were upset because they were concerned about those who had died and gone on, and they and they were struggling with this grief. And Paul says, nothing wrong with grief, but we need to grieve as Christian people, not as people without hope. Not as people without the promise. And so he writes to them here because the church was struggling with that. And again, we're, they're in times of persecution and other people are going to be dying. And they have genuine concerns here. And so he says, you moderate your grief because... We know the hope that we have in Christ. So Paul talks about them as people who have fallen asleep in Christ. Doesn't mean they went to sleep in church. There are some that did that, you know. Eutychus, <laughs> when Paul was preaching, he went on and on and on, like I do sometimes. But this guy went to sleep and he was on a third story building and he fell over and he died. <laughs> Paul went down and raised him from the dead. It didn't even shorten his sermon. He went back up and preached till. till just gone. But he's talking about people who have died in the Lord. And he's saying it's like going to sleep. They, they were asleep in Christ. So when you go to sleep, most of us have the expectation that we're going to sleep. And then in a little while, we will wake up. And Paul says, that's as Christians how we view death. Gone for a while. Short period there. And then the Lord raises us up. And so he's encouraging the Thessalonians. Um, we grieve as people who suffer loss, yes, and the grief is genuine, yes, and it's there, yes. But it's mitigated by the hope and the promise of the resurrection. And so Paul is just writing these very practical things to the church at Thessalonica. It's things that we today in our contemporary society need to hear because they're addressing issues that we face every day. And so we answer the questions, who are we and what are we to do? What is our identity? What is our mission? And Paul is addressing these in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you've come to redeem us and redeem us totally. You've come to provide cleansing and forgiveness totally every area of our life, individually and in our homes and families, relationships with husbands and wives, with parents and children, employers to employees. Lord, you've come to help us understand what it means to walk with you. We thank you for the different gifts and callings that you've given to us that we can all share and benefit and that our jobs were meant to be rewarding and fulfilling as we do them as unto you. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us and direct us. Help us to make our ambition to live quiet, peaceful lives, um, enjoying your presence, walking in the freedoms that you've come to give, 
relishing the glory that, and the peace that comes through knowing who you are. We thank you, Lord, that that is a strong thing, and that when we face suffering or loss or grief, that your presence is there to bring peace and comfort and assurance. And most of all, you create hope. And so we ask, Lord, that you would guide our ambitions, guide our desires in ways that are pleasing to you and help us as we seek to walk in ways that would bring glory and honor to you and be a witness, a testimony to all around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.